few words maybe about Mark. Many of us are familiar with Peter and believe that John Mark was son of Mary, one of the Marys that lived in Jerusalem, and so there was a lot of action that went on in that house because that's where Jesus would spend time, uh, among other places, when he went to Jerusalem. But he was an early convert um, by uh, what many believe by the Apostle Peter and was sort of his interpreter. He's written this uh, from Rome, uh, and it's written to a, a Gentile audience, and it's a it's one of the Gospels that's more of an action. It records uh, one thing after another after another. It's get to the point, keep moving. I mean, it's just action-packed. Uh, not as many words of Christ are recorded, but ample amount. There's still a lot of theology here. Um, so he, it is thought by many, and probably accurately, that, that he, this is actually the Gospel of Peter, and so, but Mark was the one who wrote it, and it was sort of shared, given to Mark from Peter to write down, uh, along with Mark's injection as well. So it's sort of a compilation of both of them. Um, but we start here in, in the gospel, and as I mentioned before, we need uh, to see and understand the nature and character of God. And as Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We want to know what God is like. We can't see God. We've never seen God. If any of you have seen God, you can maybe you can we can meet afterwards, you know, face to face. We all have this inner witness, right? And we've met the Lord personally in that way. But as far as physically seeing, we have not. But we still believe. And by observing the works of Christ as well as His words, we're going to get a better handle on the nature and character of God. Now, I want you to hold on to your hats this morning. I want you to buckle down and listen because I'm going to move fast and you're going to get some theology. Some of you have never heard before and others of you have heard it before and you're well acquainted with it. And so uh, lots of scripture to go through as we open up just the first 11 verses here. We have four witnesses to the identity and to the deity of Christ. And this is very important. Uh, for us to grasp right out of the, the gate here. So shall we stand as I read the first 11 verses of Mark's Gospel? <clears throat> the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the prophet, written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then all the land of Judea and those in Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There come, comes one after me who's mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens 
departing and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You may be seated. As we look here, we see the word prepare is in both of the scriptures and the Old Testament references. And so prepare your way. I believe that if you're prepared for who is coming, then you'll be prepared for what's coming. There are those who believe that we're, as a nation, uh, facing civil war. We are in a civil war of ideas, for sure. And there's a lot of digital warriors out there that are fighting a battle with words. I'm not sure that it's going to come to physical war. I hope not. But I do believe that it's going to get crazy between now and election. I think there's ample reason to believe that. But if you're prepared for who is coming, then you'll be prepared for what is coming, no matter what may befall us. Our motto, as we know there on the wall, do what we can with what we have where God has placed us. And that's all we can do. We are taught to control what we can control. And what's beyond our control, we're not to worry about. We're to just cast all our cares upon the Lord. There's no need for us to worry and to fret and be caught up in that. It's important that we prepare ourselves for what God has for us individually, as a family, and as a church. As I mentioned here, there's a lot of theology, and there's lots that we're going to learn about the character and nature of God as we make our way through this gospel. I love the gospel of Mark. And as we have read in other passages that Jesus was mighty in word and deed. Well, Mark sort of focuses on the deeds. He's an action guy. He's going from one event to another to another, and it's fun to see that. It's, it's let's get to the point, you know. Forget the, the details. Let's just get to the point, you know, type of guy. I like the way it's written, and I like the action. Jesus is presented to us here as the servant of the Lord. So obviously we're going to be looking at his deeds. You know, the probably the the center thesis of the book is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus never asked his disciples to do something that he himself was not willing to do. This is the mark of a true leader. It's not do as I say, but it's do as I do is the mark of a good leader, and Jesus was the best leader of all. But we're going to look at the four witnesses here that are given to us in uh, these 11 verses. The first witness being Mark himself, just laying down, because uh, he apparently knows something that his re- readers may not be aware of, and that is the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Messiah. And then we're going to look at the witness of the Scriptures, and this is where you'll need to hold on to your hat and pay attention because it's, we're going to go through a lot of scriptures to substantiate what I'm saying here and what the Bible tells us about the identity of Messiah. And then we'll see John's witness. And then, then here at the end, uh, the witness of the Father from heaven and the Holy Spirit. So jumping right in here. You know, when you read through the Gospels, you just, well, you know, it's just a narrative of everything that Jesus did. Well, there's just a, really a lot more underneath if we stop and look. You know, it's really easy to just read through the Scriptures, you know. And I find myself doing this on occasion. 
you, you are reading through scriptures and then there'll be this quote from the Old Testament. And you just sort of, you know, read it and then you don't really think about it. And I think we, we sort of do ourselves a disservice when we skim over that. I think it's important to just stop and go back to the actual passage and actually read what it says in, in the Old Testament and why these New Testament writers are quoting from it. And if you uh, took your time and prepared yourself by reading Mark uh, 1 uh, before this morning, then you'll understand what I'm talking about. What has happened here in verse 2 and 3 is the writer, Mark, has conflated uh, two particular scriptures, one from Malachi chapter 3 and the other from Isaiah 40 verse 3. And he sort of brought them together. And so there's a little liberty in conflating them. But I took the time to go back and really break it down. And I, I think uh, you'll find it interesting. To me, it just blessed my heart. And so I just want to share it with you. <laughs> just that simple. But let's start at the beginning here. As uh, John, or as Mark does. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is the beginning of an event that brings good news concerning the kingdom of God. God has been silent for over 400 years in regards to speaking to the nation of Israel. The last prophetic voice was 400 years prior. Malachi spoke to the nation and, and then crickets. And so there's an, a great anticipation that has been growing and swelling within the nation that Messiah was going to come. The hope of Israel, generation to generation, this was something that was always on the mind of God's people. When is Messiah coming? When Messiah comes, he's going to bring the kingdom of God. He's going to establish his rule. We won't have to put up our, our enemies anymore. God will be in our midst, you know. There was just that hope. Messiah is coming. He would usher in the kingdom of God and all would be well. And so by the time that John the Baptist comes on the scene, there is a heightened expectation that God was about to do something. I, I kind of feel that way in my own heart. I hope it's not my own wishful thinking. But I believe that God visits every generation. He visited my generation, our generation, in the late 60s and the early 70s. There was a tremendous movement of God's spirit. God saved a generation of hippies, those that had just given themselves over to licentiousness and crazy living, God saved us. And I believe this generation is in need of saving just as much as our generation was. And may God visit us in a powerful way. This is our prayer. This is our hope. And so this advent here, this event that he's talking about, will be the advent of Messiah. He's coming. The Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, bringing forth Messiah. He is the Son of God, a divine person. And this is something that the Pharisees had trouble receiving because they refused the Scriptures and they were blind. They thought they understood and knew the Scriptures. They were familiar with it, but they didn't really know the author Therefore, they were blinded to the, the, the depths of the meaning of the scriptures that they held. One of the things that we learn right off the bat as we begin to walk with God, one of the very first principles in studying the Bible and in your relationship with God is that he magnifies his word above his name. There must be 
a high regard for the Word of God in the life of the believer. We must not take the place of being judge and arbitrator of what we feel is inspired and what is not inspired. There are those who attack God's Word, saying that it's not authoritative. Well, this wasn't, you know, in the original. Well, we really don't know because of the manuscripts, you know, and they find all kinds of reasons to not believe. Fine. You can do and believe as you see fit. But God has told us that he magnifies his word above his name. The God I serve, the God of the Bible, is all-powerful, and he's sufficient in his strength to watch over his word and to preserve it for every generation. There is enough here for us to live godly, to do what's right, to know the mind and heart of God. It is sufficient for what we need on this side of heaven. And that should settle the issue. And it does settle the issue for most people. It is written. It is written in the prophets. And this is the authority that we have as believers. We have no other authority. I might as well just shut the book and get down from this platform if the Bible is not true, if it's not authoritative. What else do we have? Our own opinions? The opinions of men? Modern science? Oh, scare me. Please. We have the more sure word of prophecy. We have the word of God. Psalm 138.2 For your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above your name. Tremendous statement given to us by God through David. The scriptures witness to the identity and person of Messiah. Now I think it's a, if that being said that it's important for every Christian to have a good working knowledge of the scriptures. I think a lot of us believe that the Bible is the word of God and it is authoritative. But do we give ourselves to it to read it and understand it and grasp the significance of it. No, I'm not saying we're all called to be Bible scholars. Most of us are not. But we are called to be disciples, are we not? What is a disciple? A disciple is one who learns. And we've got the best master teacher that has ever existed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has sent his spirit to guide us into all truth. We have the best instructor of all. We have the Spirit of God within us. He'll teach us and instruct us if we're willing to give ourselves to the book. That's really what it comes down to. But if we, in saying that, we must make the Scripture the rule and the final authority for life and practice within our lifestyles. I do believe that out of studying the Word of God and in your walk with God, you're going to have many experiences with the Lord. And it needs to be said that the experiences that we have in the Lord are, are wonderful, but they are subjective. And when we begin to have experiences with the Lord, we have to judge those experiences by what is written. And if we can't find an example of what we are experiencing in life, in this word, then just leave it there. It's just an experience. 
don't try to base your life on it. Just know that it was an experience and leave it there. There are many people who have incredible spiritual experiences and they want to bring them to the ch- into the church and begin to practice those experiences. And I think that can be troublesome and cause trouble. We're to judge our experiences by the Word of God. If you can't find it there, just leave it there. You know, we get this from Paul. Paul had tremendous experiences in the Lord, visions and revelations, angelic visitations. And so those things can happen. But I like the way he handled himself when it came to that. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 6. It's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. And see, that's really what sort of happens when we have these experiences. Well, you know, the, the Lord appeared to me, you know, in, in my room, you know, and we start to, you know, and we just try to, people use it to draw attention to themselves and exalt themselves, and this is the problem with a lot of that. If you really have an encounter with God, you're, you're going to be the most, you're going to be humbled by it. You're going to be intimidated to the point you probably won't want to tell anybody about it because it's, it's that awe-inspiring. And so this is Paul's words in regards to his. It's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in body or out of the body I do not know, God knows. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which are not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet not myself, I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For, for though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And I believe that's good, sound advice. This is how we are to handle experiences. Now you may have a close-knit friendship with certain people and that you may be able to share some of those things in a private setting but just be careful but do not draw back from wanting to experience the Lord walk with the Lord be open I want to be open to everything that God has for me I want to know the Lord in a deep intimate personal way I'm kind of just that kind of guy I want to know stuff I'm curious I like mystery the mystery of God I like the person of God. I really want to know him. I think he, what I've learned about God is so incredible. I, I want to be closer to him, Lord. Just open my eyes and my heart and my spirit so I can grasp more of you. You know, th- that's the passion of life. That's good. And so I know I have experienced many things over the years. But I think uh, there's a rule of thumb that I'd like to, to for practice, I'd like to pass on to you in regards to this. And it's sort of a protection for the church and for you as an individual. And it is this, in, in experiences, and what I believe to be true, can I find an example of it in the Old Testament? Number two, did Jesus teach on it? And number three, did the apostles of the first church practice it? In other words, is it, is it in any of the epistles where the early churches received these letters practice it? If it's in that those three categories, it's probably something you should be doing. It's a practice that you should be observing. And so, I love this. Right out of the gate, this gospel writer says, it is written. I just think that's a wonderful statement there. 
Bible does tell us that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. He's testifying. He knows something about the identity that the readers of this gospel may not know. That Jesus Christ is God. Come in the flesh. And this is a very important thing to know. The deity of Christ. The witness of scripture here. And so let's break this down a little bit here in verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So let's turn to that scripture in, in Malachi and let's look at it. Because when you initially read this, and this is what I did, I think that the first two that he's talking about there, this Malachi scripture and then verse 3, uh, the Isaiah scripture, are both talking about John the Baptist. And I don't believe that after having studied it now. I think the first one is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll soon understand why. And then the second one obviously does refer to John the Baptist. But we see these two are sort of conflated. They're kind of brought together, so you sort of tie it together because John is the next person spoken of. But if you follow the first verse there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, And it is written, so I still think there's a carryover there from the Son of God. Let's look at the deity of Christ. Let's look at the identity of this messenger. And so Malachi 3.1 reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Even the messenger... Of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's Malachi 3 1. Now, notice the writer, Mark, here's just brought in part of that. Now, there's a freedom there for us to paraphrase. You know, you're getting the significant part of the truth, and that's, that's acceptable. But looking at the whole verse, I think, is, is important for us. Behold, I send my messenger. The word messenger is the word melek in Hebrew, and that is the word used for angel. Just a messenger. Angels are messengers. They're sent from the throne of God to the people of God on earth and bring answers to prayer, protect, and we're pretty familiar with the ministry of angels. But that is the word here used. I will send my melek, my angel. He will prepare the way before me. So... uh, What I see here is something that is not there in what I see here in Mark's gospel and is absent in Malachi 3.1 is the phrase, before your face. Now, I, I didn't read that there. Did you read it there? No, you didn't. It's not there. So how could he inject before your face? I think that needs to be understood. And again, we're talking about the writer here some 30 years after the crucifixion of Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ are some 30 years in the past. This writer now knows. He's now seeing everything tied together, the new and the old coming together, the fulfillment of these prophecies. And so he's able to see things uh, that prior to this were unseen. A lot of times that's the way it is with prophecy. You don't really recognize it or see it until it's at, oh, yeah, that's what that means. You know, you, you, you really understand it after it happens, you know. And so I think that's sort of what's going on here. But uh, it's important that we get a grasp on this phrase here, before your face. So in Exodus, 
chapter 33. Like I said, this is going to tax you a little bit, so you're going to have to pay attention. Exodus 33, 14 and 15. Yahweh is speaking to Moses. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest. And then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, don't bring us up from here. Then skip on down to verse 20 through 23. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And the Lord said, Here's, my, here's a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, and it shall be that while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What's interesting is you, and you can do this with your little Bible study programs or break out your Strong's Concordance, the word presence in verse 14 and 15 is the same word for my face in verses 20 through 23. My face and my presence are one and the same. And so there's a the connection here and before your face there in in the Greek in verse 2 is the presence. This messenger is going before the presence of Yahweh. Now, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 is an interesting capstone on this. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the presence. So in the Old Testament, they were not allowed to see the face, the entire presence. But now we can in the New Testament. God has completely revealed himself and unveiled himself. The apocalypse, the unveiling of his nature and character in the person of Jesus Christ. I like what Moses said. If your presence does not go with us, don't go with, don't bring us up out of here. I don't want to go anywhere that you aren't. And I should make it a regular prayer of mine, Lord, take me to where you're going to be. I never want to be out of the presence of the Lord. This is something that should be so precious to us. You know, God is near us. I mean, how much nearer can you be? You know, he lives inside the believer. I mean, you you really can't get much closer than that, right? You know, your heart beats in your chest. Your heart's pretty close to you, you know. You hear it. It, It's thumping all the time, right? Think about it in the spiritual sense, because we are spiritual beings. Our soul and our spirit, the immaterial part of us is the, is the greater reality of who we are. The flesh that we see, the tent that we live in, is temporary. We are eternal beings. And it is in the spirit realm that God connects with our souls. His spirit bears witness with our spirit. That's where we sense the presence of God. And that's so crucial in the life of a believer. He's just so quiet. He's so gentle. He's so kind. We barely recognize him. That's our God. So to me, this verse and this understanding of Malachi 3.1 confirms the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not some crazy thought come 
coming into the New Testament that, that God would incarnate himself. This was not a shock to those who were loyal to Yahweh. They could see the two personages of the Godhead in the Old Testament. I do not think verse 2 has anything to do with John the Baptist. I think it has everything to do with the messenger. And the messenger, the angel of the Lord, is the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he's seeing the bigger picture. God is sending Messiah to prepare the way for the coming of Yahweh. One of these days, in, our, in the distant future, from now even, God is going to come and he's going to tabernacle in the midst of his people. This has always been in the mind and heart of God. This is what the word Emmanuel means. When we see in, the other, in Luke's gospel, God with us. God's intention is that he always tabernacles, that he's always in the presence physically, visibly there with his people. We're now separated by sin in the fall. But one day that will all be cleaned up. And I think this is what he is saying. He's sending the Messiah before he comes and sets up the kingdom of God. And I think that's the fuller interpretation of that verse. It's the big picture, so to speak. The messenger of the covenant, as we read there, at the end of... And the Lord whom you seek, this is Malachi 3.1, will suddenly come into his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. John the Baptist did not establish any covenant. Jesus did. I mean, the writer of Hebrews 9.15, and all commentators know that he's talking about and referring to the new covenant. And so that should solidify that truth within your mind. I think it's kind of interesting. It says, also in 3.1, that he will suddenly come into his temple. The word suddenly means unexpectedly. And for a commentary on that, you can just simply turn to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, where they brought Jesus to the temple. There was the rite of circumcision that took place and then the rite of, of purification for Mary after having, having a child and then meeting Simeon and they sort of present him there and the Spirit of God had already revealed to this old prophet and priest that he would see the Messiah. And there's that witness. He will come unexpectedly into the temple. And so thus it was fulfilled by Jesus having his parents taking him to the temple. Now, to confirm this, and many of you are familiar with this truth, we see this two personages of God in the Old Testament. One physical and one the voice, or spiritual, the unseen, the voice from heaven, Yahweh speaking to Moses out of the, at the mountaintop, and then the physical, the Lord speaking to him in that tabernacle of meeting, face-to-face, as, a, as, as one speaks face-to-face with a friend. And we see this mediator individual, this angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament uh, appearing. He's given divine names. He's got divine attributes. He, he acts in a divine way. He appeared occasionally in this human form to people. 
uh, Hagar, Abraham, Jacob, Joshua, Gideon, Manoah, and his wife. And so we've got countless appearances of this angel of the Lord, this messenger of Yahweh coming to help instruct uh, the people. Exodus 23.20, I'll just give you a, a for instance here. Yahweh said, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way, to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. So, again, Isaiah 63.9, in, in all their affliction he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He bore them and carried them all the days of old. And here, as we've read, he is called the angel of his presence or the face. So you can understand now the significance of some of these in the Hebrew, the exchange of some of these words, presence and face. It's important to understand those things and grasp those things because we're talking about identity of deity. So critical to you and I as believers. And if for those of you who are still kind of like, what? Okay, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. I'm laying it down. Are you picking this up? I mean, this is some important stuff, and it's, 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 it's encouraging to me. We know we're on the right track. We have Jesus, right? Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in his last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so what we see as students of the Bible, that through the Old Testament we have this gradual doctrine of the incarnation being given to us and so as i said before it was no shock to those who loved the lord for those who studied the scriptures they understood this physical yahweh who came as the angel of the lord periodically throughout the old testament for him for god to manifest himself and to incarnate himself was not a major thing and actually, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they questioned that you being a man, make yourself God. They should have known. They were the religious leaders. They were held accountable for their ignorance. That's one of the things that we don't want to be guilty of as believers. We don't want to be ignorant of the Scriptures. We need to know the Scriptures. And that's why it is written, the witness of the Scriptures Moving on, now let's go to Isaiah 40. We won't go quite as long into that because it's pretty straightforward. Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The word prepare, used in both cases, in both scriptures, you get the idea that we need to turn we need to make ourselves ready. The idea of preparing is getting something ready. Something's, we're anticipating something. Make straight. It means to be right or to please. Look, God wants to do something in your life very special. 
God has plans and purposes for your life that will just, if you knew every good thing that God wanted to do in your life, it would just absolutely blow your mind. You'd probably shudder and think, oh, well, I can't. You'd, you'd be overwhelmed. But it's true. But we have to prepare ourselves. God uses men and women who will give themselves to his word because nothing can sanctify and prepare a man for what God wants to do like his word. This is what he told his disciples. They, were, they, they knew they made mistakes. They knew they were dunderheads on occasion. And he said to them, you, know, you are clean, the word which I've spoken to you. It is the word of God that sanctifies us. How shall a young man cleanse his way? It is through the word. It's so important for us to understand that truth and give ourselves to the word of God. Now, skipping forward in, to John's witness. We know he was called and ordained by God, but who was John the Baptist? He was a special child. He's a miracle child. I mean, mom and dad were old. She was barren, and he's in there serving the Lord, and, and he has a vision, a lifetime experience, you know, waiting in line and waiting in line. Oh, it's finally your turn to, you know, to do, offer the incense, and you go in there, and all of a sudden the angel shows up and lays this thing on you that you're going to have a kid, and you know, he, you know the story there in Luke. It's quite interesting. You're welcome to read that. Luke chapter 1 and 2 there. But John's background is interesting. Uh, he was born to aged parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And so he was of the priestly family. John should have been reared in the temple. He was in line to be one of the priests. But he is absent in his adult years. He's out in the wilderness the Bible does says that his mom and dad were both righteous, according to Luke's gospel. And what was given as a message to Zacharias came to pass, and this miraculous child of older parents was born. And it is believed that Zacharias was martyred by Herod. And because of the persecution, probably because he was spirit-filled and he spoke the truth, uh, Elizabeth fled to the wilderness. Because when we see in verse 80 of chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, he is there uh, in the wilderness. How did he get in the wilderness? You know, Elizabeth just lose control and the little guy ran off? I mean, I mean, how did he end up in the wilderness? Something had to have happened. So that's sort of the legend. We, don't, we can't verify that scripturally, but it sort of makes sense. He's not part of the establishment. We do know that. Though he had rights to be part of the establishment. He was not. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Again, prepare. Make yourself ready. That was his mission. Get ready. The Son of God, Messiah, the messenger of Yahweh is coming. And so this is important. He came baptizing. He came preaching this baptism of repentance. And man, I mean, this guy laid it down. He, he was bold. He didn't let the chips fall where it, they may type of thing. I mean, uh, <laughs> Matthew 3, 7 and 8, you brood, are you offspring of vipers? <laughs> you snakes. <laughs> Who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. You, you self-righteous hypocrites need to straighten up. The axe is laid to the root. Don't say within your heart, we are Abraham's children, you know. Looking after the flesh. Well, because our, our father Abraham, you know, loved God, therefore we're safe, you know. Well, my mom and dad are, are God-fearing people, so it doesn't really matter. My grandfather was a preacher, so I should make it into heaven. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. 
Everybody has to repent. Everybody needs to turn. It's a personal, individual thing. He came, John came for this ministry to prepare people for the Lord. He came so that people could receive the forgiveness of sin. Every one of us needs to prepare our hearts, make things straight. I remember this in my own heart. I believe it was the work of the Holy Spirit. I wasn't raised in the church, as many of you know. And I came to the Lord at the age of 18. God's Spirit was working with me. I didn't really know it was God's Spirit at the time, but I've figured it out since then. But I remember some of the activities that I was involved in and and the hurt and the pain that I was bringing into my own life and the life of other people. And I remember thinking these thoughts, what What's it going to take to straighten me up? Why, why don't I just quit and just straighten up? And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, God was preparing me to receive him. And so this is so important for this. And no, I can't hardly get by this section here you know, without mentioning John's lifestyle. I mean, I think he's, <laughs> he's, he's a man's man. Um, you know, anybody that can eat Locusts and wild honey men, okay. <laughs> That's rough sled men. I guess the honey lets it slide down easier. I don't know. <laughs> but his clothing, you know, he's not. Yeah. <laughs> Leather belt, camel's hair. You know, he's kind of like the prophets of old. What this really is, is he's. He's identifying with the lower end of the culture. I mean, this is what poor people ate. This is what the poor uh, sometimes wore, the camel's skin and and all. So um, John lived in the wilderness as an anchorite, you know, sort of a a religious recluse, uh, very ascetic. He was focused on his... Inner thoughts, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He had one passion, and that was to be obedient to God. And that was, his passion was to see people come and be prepared for the coming of the Lord. I think that's the ministry the church has today. We're to help prepare the way for the Lord's coming, to help introduce people to the Messiah. We have to tell people to repent. We have to tell people to turn. We have to stress the need for the forgiveness of sin. You see, this is the common denominator of all the people that are in heaven. It doesn't matter what age. All the way from Adam until the eternal reign of God, the people that are allowed access into heaven have one thing in common. They are all forgiven. We're all sinners that are forgiven by God. There's nobody in heaven that has not received the gift of forgiveness. So when I talk to people on their deathbed or otherwise... It is always about the forgiveness of sin. And it's also important, having received personally the forgiveness of sin, that you extend that same forgiveness to those who have offended you. In fact, is that is the caveat. If you fail to forgive others their sin, then God will hold your sins against you until you're willing to release others from their sin. We're all made out of the same material. We're fallen people who need redemption. We all need forgiveness. Well, his sin's darker than mine. Well, maybe it is, but it's still, no matter what, how you judge it, it still falls short of God's perfection, and so that's important. One final thought in regard to John, and it's his testimony. 
This is what Jesus said about John. Among those born of women, there's not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. We have the same spirit. We have the same power. We have the same ability given to us by God to live a life separate from the world. We don't have to let our flesh control us. We don't have to let the world influence us. We have his spirit. And so Jesus, in verses 9 through 11, we'll close with this, came to be baptized by him, and according to Matthew three fifteen, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus came to re- represent the people of God before Yahweh. That was his mission. He was to become the high priest. And so I believe this whole idea, baptism is all, all about identification. He's identifying with mankind the need for redemption. Not that he needed to repent. He was sinless. There wasn't that issue. It was just simple identification. He was anointed there for the mission. The Spirit of God we see there descends upon him. And then there's the voice from heaven. This is the witness of the Father. Just a beautiful picture of the Trinity here. There are those who say, oh, the Trinity, you know, just read your Bible. Come on. The Father is speaking from heaven. The Spirit, the invisible Spirit taking the form of a dove, and then we have the Son of God on earth. The triune Godhead. Perfect illustration of what we know to be true. I want to leave you with this this morning. And it has to do with the descending spirit. There are some in the body of Christ that if you bring up the Holy Spirit, immediately this invisible wall comes up. (gasps) You know, the conversation's pretty much over. You might continue to talk, but as far as they're concerned, the conversation's over. And that's really sad. Jesus said, I'm going to send my spirit, the comforter, the one who will strengthen and empower and teach. To talk about the Holy Spirit should not make you uncomfortable. Now, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit because he's the quiet one. He will not bear witness of himself, but he'll bear witness of Christ. So the Holy Spirit's always pointing us to Jesus, and that's fine. But it is important for us to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. But notice that the invisible spirit of God took the form of a dove. Now, what is it about a dove? Now, doves are pretty cool, actually. Uh, those guys can migrate all over the place, and they can fly really fast. I don't know if people know that. They've been clocked at over 90 mile an hour. I mean, they are amazing creatures. And, um, but that's not the point here. Now, the point is, is that what we think of a dove, we think of the gentleness. But I also want to point out that as birds are easily frightened. It's very difficult to tame a bird, a wild bird. You know, you try to approach a nest with a bird in it and they will fly away, right? Birds don't naturally land on people. But there's something about Jesus and his, this meekness. He's meek. He's so meek that this dove from heaven lands upon him. Obviously, picture us of him being anointed for his ministry. Jesus is, though he is God, though he is divine, 
Though he is the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament, he has now submitted himself as a man to the infilling of the Holy Spirit. He will come and return from the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what all of us need. We need to be meek and humble ourselves before God so that the Spirit of God can light upon us and then anoint us and empower us to fulfill the mission that God has called us to do. The other thing, and I'll close with this thought, the other thing about the dove is the idea of peace. This is what is so absent in our culture today. And this is what the Bible says. There is no peace to the wicked, says the Lord. We cannot know internal inner peace, inner tranquility, apart from having a relationship with God. There's a war. We're at war and enmity with God until that sin, that guilt spirit is removed. There's something always bugging us, always harboring within our conscience until we confess it and repent and bring it to God. And, and then when that is gone, we've received forgiveness, what result is in us and in our spirit is a peace that passes all understanding. The long war against God ceases. That is peace with God through the forgiveness that is offered in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why his blood shed on the cross provides that atonement. It breaks down that wall of separation. We now have a connection with God. But then there's this other aspect of which the believer is in so desperate need of moment by moment, day by day. And that is the peace of God. The peace that passes all human understanding that no matter what my circumstances are around me, I am at peace. God is in control. I don't fear. I don't sweat it. I know that when I die, I'm going to be in his presence. I know that he has his angels around about me and he's protecting me. I know that God is providing for me. I know that he's got it, that he's in control. I'm at rest. And so this is so important for us. Sometimes we, we have rough nights sleeping. We toss and turn, and we've taken some load, some heavy mental issue to bed with us, and it wakes us up in the middle of the night, and we don't have any peace. We toss and turn. Or maybe throughout the day, we're being bombarded with somebody that said some injurious thing to us, and, and I just want to pound them, or, you know, I want to have vengeance. And, you know, just, oh, there's just a, there's a lack of peace. How do we deal with that? How do we face those kinds of things? And I think it's, it's when uh, we do what the Bible says. He whose mind is stayed upon me will be at perfect peace. It is at those times that you get up from your bed, you go to your desk, you pull out your Bible, you begin to read and you begin to pray the scriptures. and You begin to take your focus off that person, off that circumstance, whatever it is that's harboring in your mind and you bring it to God. And you lay it there and you begin to focus on him. What he has done for you. How he has forgiven you. How he's taking you through. You do business with that area. You bring it to God. And when our minds are completely refocused on him, the dove descends. The peace is there. Not only peace with God because we've been forgiven, but the peace of God. Oh, it's such a, such a gift.
to live a life of tranquility, of rest. I see what's going on in our world today and it just it's heartbreaking to see the pain and the suffering that people go through. People are not happy. People are sad. They're burdened. Their lives are being destroyed. It's they have no peace. And yet what God offers us in the person of Jesus Christ is peace. And so I want to encourage you to walk in what God has provided for us. You're inevitably going to have a few bumps in the road this week. Somebody's going to say something off the wall or someone is going to do you wrong and you'll have an opportunity to exercise what I'm talking about. And you'll find that it works when you bring it to the Lord, when you roll it over and trust Him to, to deal with it. And so shall we stand and, and pray. Father, we thank You that You are able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we think or ask. I'm asking, Father, that you pour out your peace, that you would place within every heart here and those listening otherwise online a peace that passes all understanding, that you will take away all fear, all torment, that you allow forgiveness, the removal of guilt, it will just be a, a free flow. Lord, as we received this exhortation this morning to prepare our hearts to receive you, to receive the knowledge and the understanding that's needed, Lord. We want to fulfill our purpose and our destiny. Help us to get our things right and keep it right with you. So bless my brothers and sisters this week. Fill our lives with your peace. Fill our lives with your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.